morning. And I don't know what he's talking about. I sound perfectly good. I lost a bet to our sound guy. All right, maybe not. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up. We're working our way through the book of Revelation. And as we did this introduction, we reminded ourselves that Revelation is given to us and intended to be understood. So many people stand at arm's distance away from this book thinking, oh, we can't get it. And yet in the opening lines, as John captures this final book of the New Testament for us, he reminds us that blessed are those who read these words out loud. That's me, right? So I get blessed just for doing it. And then blessed are you who hear and who obey. So the idea behind this book is that you are to hear this, you're to understand it, and you're to act on it, right? You can't act on something if you don't understand it. So this book was given to the church for them in their time, just like we get to read it and understand it and then apply it in our time, and that our job is to act on it. So being out sick this week, there's, uh, as you go to the doctor, and I get, uh, by the way, I right now am cursing a nurse who scraped the back of my throat with a stick. So if you're a nurse, a little discomfort is not what that is. I'm just saying. All right. So uh, anyhow, I digress. Stay hydrated, right? They tell you drink lots of water. Drink lots of water. You know, hey, do this. All these things that will help. And I was thinking about that drink lots of water thing. And, you know, I was hear that, and then I hear the doctors say, well, how much coffee do you drink? And you always want to trim that back a little bit because they tell you to not do that, right? <laughs> what I'm trying to understand is if my coffee is like 99% water, why is that not okay? Right? Well, thank you. You see, there's something that we add to water in the coffee that changes it, Right? We add things, the caffeine and, and the other parts of that that are added to it, even though it begins as, I don't know, 99% water. But we add something to it and it changes it, right? Same thing is true with Kool-Aid or whiskey. I don't know. I mean, like, the same idea exists. Like, it starts as a lot of water, right? But somehow, somehow when you add something, it changes it. I'm going to put a note on the screen for you. The word is syncretism. It's a blending of theological, philosophical, or cultural schools of thought that ultimately changes what we have. Jesus plus anything else is not biblical Christianity. See, syncretism is taking and keeping what you do, keeping what you have, but adding something to it, adding something into it, and when you add something into it, you actually change what you have. See, Christianity is a Jesus plus nothing. But we often add. This was true 2,000 years ago or 1,900 years ago, if you want to be a little more technical. This was true 1,900 years ago to the churches that were struggling with a Jesus plus the culture they live in. And it's true for us today. This is what we'll see. So Revelation chapter 2, if you need a Bible... There's one of the seats in front of you, unless you're in the front row, obviously. Page 1029, if you want some help getting there. We're going to pick up on verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, we've been talking about this description 
of Jesus that came out in chapter 1 that's been broken into smaller pieces as we've been reading these introductions to each church. Each church is receiving a little bit of the description of who Jesus is from the description in Revelation 1. So you see Jesus in Revelation 1, and he's got a two-edged sword coming from his mouth, which is meant to be image-driven, not literal. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are burnished bronze. Like you get this description of Jesus. And then as you get to each of the seven churches, one portion or a portion of, a, a percentage of that description is given specifically to each of the churches. And what we learned last week is that description of Jesus, that specific part of who Jesus is, is relevant to who the church is and what they're struggling with at that time. We used the example last week that if you're here and you're struggling in your marriage, you don't need a Jesus who is the healer of addictions, right? And if you're the person who's here and struggling with addiction, you don't need Jesus, the marriage counselor, right? Like Jesus needs to be who you need in that moment. And so Jesus is all these things, but as he reveals himself to each church, he is specific to what they need. This one is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So I want to put Hebrews on the screen. Hebrews 4 says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a really well-known verse. We all know this one. That the word of God, and again, when you hear the word of God, we immediately go to the Bible. Think of the spoken word of God, which is what Jesus is often called. Same author, John's gospel, the opening words to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and nothing that was made was made without him. So the word of God is a hymn. The very spoken word of God is Jesus, pre-incarnate. Jesus before he becomes flesh. So as we fast forward to the end, the final book of the New Testament, same author, and he writes that Jesus is the one who has the word of God, the, the two-edged sword. He has the very word of God that is powerful both ways, if you will. A sword is an, a unique weapon as it is both defensive and offensive. And the word of God is like that. It both defends us, fights for us, and it also can cut us. It can also critique and discern and teach. Verse 12, one more time. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... Verse 13, I, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, John is going to use consistent language throughout the book of Revelation. We've talked a little bit about this. When we get into the more heavy image-driven passages, 4, 5, 6, and forward, then we'll talk about defining some of these things. We'll look at some of the consistent language used throughout the entire book so that you kind of have like a, a cheat code, if you will, like, a, oh, when he says this, this is what he's typically talking about, right? Just like when we say the sword, the two-edged sword, okay, we know what he's talking about, right? So if that's to be repeated, then we'll pick that up. The lamb, 
as we've got the lion and the lamb in that graphic, right? The lamb looking as if he had been slain. We'll talk about that. That's Jesus on the throne looking as if he had been killed, the cross, but very alive, right? We'll define some of those repeated images. This throne of Satan, and now we've heard this language, and we'll talk about it a little bit more, uh, a little bit later, the synagogue of Satan we read last week, right? Talking about the Jews that were persecuting Christianity. Now, of course, they are not saying they're the synagogue of Satan. They're saying they're a synagogue. They're Jewish people who worship the God that you and I would call the God of the Old Testament or the God who is creator, but they don't recognize Jesus. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises, or more importantly, as God himself. So when he says the throne of Satan, he's not looking to literal Satan worship, and that's important for us today. You don't have to be literally worshiping the devil to qualify here. And so this throne of Satan that he's talking about is because this city is the hub for all kinds of worship, particularly Roman worship. And so Pergamum was a worship hub with temples to Roma, the goddess of Roman cult worship. Caesar Augustus, also Roman cult worship, one of the Caesars, right? Asclepius, the god of healing, and Zeus, the Greek father god or supreme god. So there was really hubs of two primary Roman cult worship and two big Greek cult worships. And so this place, this city with a lot of worship was going on, he calls the throne of Satan this place where lots of worship takes place. Now, syncretism was popular outside of Christianity. So if you were someone who worshipped Greek gods or idols or statues, Greek, what you and I might call Greek mythology, if you were that, it was very easy in your pantheon of gods, your, your plethora of people that you worship or things that you worship, it was easy to add in a little bit of Roman emperor worship, right? You had all the things that you worshiped, and as long as you did this little thing to worship the current Caesar, you got along smoothly. And so outside of Christianity, it was easy to add one more thing in. Because outside of Christianity, most people were polytheistic. They worshiped many idols or gods. So inside of that, you could worship many gods and just add one. That's called syncretism. You see, inside Christianity, there was a struggle. See, these local cities, especially where worship was prominent, especially where other worship was prominent, was they had the trade guilds, think modern-day unions. And so metal workers and, and iron workers are just these different people. And in order to get inside the guilds, because their primary business was connected to worship, in order to get in there, you had to agree to worship as they did. So you can see in this first century landscape, if your job was metal worker or goldsmith or something, you can see how you would be excluded from that if you didn't worship as they did. So syncretism, adding something in to what you already do, was very common. The problem is Christianity is monotheistic. The Christianity proclaims that there is one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that are together co-eternal and co-worshipped, and that they alone are God, that there is one God and no others. And that that God created all else, and that all else exists as created things, and that it is idolatry and sin 
to worship created things instead of the creator. So syncretism was a blending of worship. Verse 13, let's read that again from the beginning. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So again, this false worship community, Jesus twice says, this throne of Satan where Satan dwells. But he credits the church there for faithfully adhering to Jesus alone despite the persecution. Despite the pressures of trying to get a job in your field and working in your community and often being banned because you didn't worship who they worshiped, they held fast. Even when people were martyred in their church, people were killed in their church for not adding in some other worship, for not watering down their worship of Christ alone. And so he commends them, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So you did not compromise. Jesus commends them for that. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, that you have some there to hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now let's pause here. We said in the beginning, we'll say this over and over again because I want to make sure that everybody gets it. And I know not everybody is here for every message. So, as Jesus opens up this book and he speaks to John, as John begins to capture this, he tells him that there are three things that he is to write down. One is what he is revealing from the scriptures. We would call that the Old Testament at this point. From the testimony of Jesus, which is the gospels or Jesus' teachings. And then from what he sees. And so these three things will come together in the book of Revelation. Imagery from the Old Testament, which is heavy in Revelation. In fact, you cannot understand Revelation apart from the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament imagery that has been defined for us by prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel, all put together here, help us understand what is being said. Then there's the teaching of Jesus, which is consistent with that, that gives us more information. And then there's what John sees which helps us to kind of put it all together. And so we're referring back now to a story in Numbers. Uh, it starts in like chapter 22, ends in chapter 26. And it talks about a pagan prophet named Balaam. There's a Moabite king named Balak who is trying to curse the people of God. This is well, they're in the wilderness and they're beginning to move into some of the promised land. They're beginning to displace the people that live there. They're under Moses' leadership. God is pushing them into or, or, or moving them into the place where they will live that will become theirs. And this Moabite king, this enemy of God's people, goes to this pagan prophet, if you will, and he says, I want you to curse the people of Israel. And three times, Balaam goes to curse the people of Israel, but God constrains him, and all that will come out of his mouth is blessing. You can imagine the Moabite king isn't happy. And so these three times, and so Balak tells him, hey, so what do we do? And, and, and finally, Balaam the prophet says, listen, I can't curse them. God won't let me. And so what happens is Balaam sends young and pretty women among the Israelite men 
to sleep with them and introduce false worship practices to them. And over a short amount of time, what happens is their faith slips into, again, syncretism. It's not that they stop worshiping God. It's not like they abandon the God they worship. It's that they add in other practices over here. This ultimately leads to a ton of death and destruction within Israel for their false worship. I want you to hear this. They didn't leave worshiping God. They added something else. And this other thing was pleasurable and fun, and it, and it distracted them. And it pulled them away from true worship of God. And that's what happened. And that is what led to their demise. And so it's that moment, that story that is prominent in Israel's history that was a perpetual problem for Israel. In fact, led to the schisming of their country in half and the demise of their leadership in the world. So this Balaam story is prominent to Israel. He says, I have a few things against you. Verse 14. You have some there hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So best case scenario, I'm going to guess that if somebody came up to you and held a gun to your head and told you to deny Jesus, I'm, I'm going I'm to guess most, if you're serious about Jesus, would not. Right? Confronted with that, hey, I'm going to make my stand now or never, you'd probably make that stand. Here's the problem. Typically, it isn't that stand. Right? Typically, it isn't that, hey, deny Jesus or else. Typically, it's much more subtle in our lives. It's this creeping in of other things. It's this distraction and pleasure and temptation and things that, that pull us into a place where we're not to be. So I feel like I've used so many of the same examples over and over again. And so today, I just want to use a simple one. And I want to use something that's not inherently evil. It's not even inherently bad. But sometimes it creeps in. Again, when we talk about these people that are wandering off into false worship and sexual immorality, God is the one who created worship. God is the one who created sex. But he gets to give the guidelines of who and when and how. And so the same idea here, something doesn't have to be evil to draw you off track. And so I'm going to go home today after this, and I'm going to watch football, right? Many of you guys will watch football. Mine will be a little more miserable than yours, probably, but, you know, it's just the nature of being a Cowboys fan. So it just is, right? It's humbling. <laughs> Perseverance. It's, it's, it's another form of sanctification for sure. Yeah. Sports. What are the largest gatherings of worship today sports did you know that a hundred years ago it was illegal to do sports on sunday the blue laws right the blue laws the religious laws it was illegal to play in fact back in the 1950s when the tv became a thing right you know that'll never last right so when the tv became a thing nobody wanted the sunday slots nobody wanted to be on tv on sunday because who watch them because people are at church. Do you know in 1986 there were no Sunday football games except for the Super Bowl? 86. 
87 is when ESPN picked up Sunday night football and pulled it off of being primarily Monday night. Who knew? Today, Sunday is saturated with sports. All kinds of sports. Football, for sure. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, that doesn't seem inherently evil. But if I go back 100 years where you couldn't do this because our faith was more of a priority, and, and listen, I don't think making a rule 100 years ago about sports is going to fix our hearts. You with me? I don't think you can legislate a value of life today or morality or a sexual ethic either. But the culture was such that we believe that Sundays and church are valuable, therefore we guard it. So what do you give more time to? Maybe you're not a sports person. I mean, maybe you get a, you get a pass today. Maybe you just insert social media or whatever it is you do, right? Something that could be good, not inherently evil, but that you devote a portion of your life to. Do you spend more time understanding your sport? If your kid plays a sport, do you spend more time training your child in a sport than you do in training your child in discipleship of Jesus? See, that's where things creep in. Verse 15, so also you have some that hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we already talked about this. We don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans were. And if anybody tells you what they were, they don't know. It's been lost to history. There's some ideas, but we're not sure. Here's what we know. It was a false teaching that crept its way inside the church that Jesus singles out as a false teaching. So it's Jesus plus something else taught inside the church. You with me? This isn't worship of someone else. This was inside the church. And this is the second time in chapter 2 Jesus has called this out as a false teaching inside the church. That draws us off track. So where do you devote your time, your money, your energy, your effort, your attention? Is there something that has crept its way into your life that pulls you outside of Jesus? That becomes more important than gathering as the church. See, Jesus isn't speaking to Christians in their homes where they live and saying, hey, it's totally cool because I know you get up on Mondays and pray. He's talking about the gathered believers. See, Jesus values this, this gathering of those of us who identify ourselves by his name. That when we are together, which is what the early Greek word ecclesia for church meant, was the gathering. That when we gather, there is something special and beautiful, and it's this gathering that Jesus says he stands among, and it's this gathering that Jesus speaks to. It's this gathering that Jesus loves of, of believers called his body in a local church, his local body of Christ. It's this that he loves and prioritizes. What crowds this out? That's what we're asking. Verse 16, he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword of my mouth. Repenting of syncretism. Repenting of diluting Christianity with anything else. Of taking Jesus and adding anything else into your value system that would pull you away from Jesus. 
See, the gospel is one of repentance. See, the gospel is not just one of forgiveness, but it's one of repentance. Yes, Jesus entered into our human story, put on flesh like us. God become human, fully God, fully human, this mystery wrapped in a body who would live a sinless life, the life you and I don't even try and live sometimes, and that none of us can live, and that he would take that perfectly divine, perfectly human life and be sacrificed on a cross to cover our sin, to, to be a mediator between a sinful humanity and a holy God, that Jesus would die to bridge the gap, that he would resurrect from the gate so that he could call us to living a new life, not just to cover over our mess, but to give us something new. As Jesus ascends back to heaven, he pours out his spirit on us. He empowers us to be different, calling us to gather as his body, to know one another, love one another, care for one another, correct one another, worship and pray with one another, that we would be a unique thing called the church, the church, local church. And that he would do this so that we could be a witness to the world around us. But that body, that church, what we're called to is repentance. That we would take everything and set everything else down. And that nothing would come before our faith. You see, inside of our faith, you know, for me, it, it's, it's got to be Jesus. And then next comes Lisa, right? Family, your, your spouse, your kids. And then the ministry that you're a part of. Unfortunately, we push this part down and we put in all our life goals. You see, you can live and work and eat and be and do it on ministry. Do it on mission. Do it as a follower of Jesus. You can enjoy the life that God created, the world that God created. And you can do so. In fact, I would say you can only truly enjoy the world that God created in Christ. But we push the church down, we keep putting things up. Not ultimately rejecting Jesus, just adding some other things in. That's what was happening in this church. So how do we discern that? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the same verse we just had up a minute ago. Remember who Jesus defines himself as, the one with a two-edged sword. So Hebrews says the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, it is God's word, Christ himself, but God's word to us that separates even the intentions of our heart, that cuts through and says, no, this is good and this is not good, right? This is good and this is evil. This is worship, this is idolatry. This is faith. This is the world. Verse 17, he says, he who has an ear. Now remember, this is repeated to all seven churches. And it becomes the plural. Yes, this is what you're struggling with here. But I want all the churches to hear this. This is where we get to go, okay, this is for us too. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now the manna obviously is a reference back to the wilderness, back to the time where Moses led the people and God provided for them. 
So you've got these people in the trade guilds that are struggling because in order to get into these unions, if you will, these guilds, in order to get in, you have to compromise and water down your faith. You don't have to deny Jesus. You just have to add a little Roman worship. Just to add a little worship of Caesar, and you're okay. But he says, for those who conquer, those who overcome, I will provide for you. And I'll give you a, a white stone. And there was this 2,000 years ago in Roman culture when an athlete would compete. Often when they would win, they'd be given this white stone, sometimes with a name on it. And they'd be invited into a banquet. This white stone, this new name, this manna, it's all looking forward to us forever, right? That we, would, that we would understand that this world will struggle. This world will have trial. This world, we will have hardship and problems. That there will be pain in this world, but we fix our eyes over here to forever with Jesus, and we trust that the provision for today will come. And even if that provision means an end to your life here, then we look here. He who has ears, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, Jesus says. Verse 18, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Thyatira was a smaller and less significant city but it had a same familiar struggle of Roman cult worship. When I say Roman cult worship, the worship of the nation and the worship of the leader. That ought to touch a few buttons if you just think about that for a minute. So in order to participate, you would offer incense to the emperor or to a former emperor, to Roma, Rome. And he would just add that in. And Thyatira had this struggle as well. And Jesus reveals himself as the son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, feet are like burnished bronze. Both the fire and the bronze are images of judgment. That he is describing himself now as judge. Verse 19, he says, I know your works. So he is judging them. There's good and bad to the judgment. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So, so far, so good, really, right? I know your works, your love, your service. I know that your later works, right, the things that you did after you came to faith are even better than when you first came to faith. Like, you, you grew in your faith. You, you did more later than you did in the beginning, and, and we see that today. Sometimes people have this kind of experience or this emotional conversion and, and they, they're all in for Jesus here and then somehow it wanes. And that's common. And I don't mean just kind of ups and downs through life. We'll all experience that. But this thing where there's this kind of a, a flash, right? Here's my faith and then it just kind of wanes and gets weaker because of life. Maybe because of a lack of connectivity to a body. And he says that you, you this church, Thyatira, you're, you're the opposite. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. You're struggling, but you are patiently enduring. Your latter works exceed the first. It's this one part that he comments on that seems to be a, pro a prominent theme for them. 
This church seems to be a very loving church, that they love one another and they love the people in the community that they're in. And see, there's this struggle that comes with love. See, love untethered, love unanchored to truth often gives way to tolerance. Right, that we, we want to be so loving, but we're unanchored to what is true and what is best and what is good, that in our lovingness, we end up tolerating things that are actually unhealthy for people. Verse 20, he says this, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Very similar to the last church. But instead of the outside creeping in, it's creeping up from inside and working its way throughout the church. You see, your love for others, unanchored in the truth, what it's producing is tolerance. And you are tolerating sin and idolatry. Tolerance is the watering down of our faith by loving other people in ways that don't call them to God's best, that don't call them to truth. Now, here's the, here's the, I just want to throw this note in there. Churches have a tendency to be one or the other. Where Jesus says we will lead with grace and truth, churches tend to either have truth and are very unloving, or grace, very loving, and not tethered to truth. There are many churches out there that will tell you everything that is wrong with culture, that will loudly champion and banner these things that are wrong with culture. Oh, God hates this, and God hates that. There are people with banners on the sides of street corners who are shouting about what God hates, and what you can't find is an ounce of love in them. Jesus says, you'll know, they'll know, the world will know, you're my disciples by your love, by your love for one another. Remember, the credit to the church was they were loving. But see, on the other side of this is the church who is just lost in being loving. Well, if we talk about this sin over here, well, then they, they might not feel loved or welcomed or accepted the way they are. But if someone's a heroin addict, it is unloving to not tell them, hey, you're a heroin addict. Hey, what you're doing is poison to your life. What you're doing is death to your marriage. Hey, what you're doing is killing your children. What you're doing is a cancer to your faith. It is unloving to not speak truth. But it can be very truthful and unloving. This church is struggling right here with loving people so much, being unanchored, untethered from the truth that they're allowing false teaching to drive the narrative. So this woman Jezebel, again, an Old Testament reference most of you know of who is a promiscuous woman who misleads the people of God. And so this teaching is coming up from within that there are things that, you, oh, no, it's okay, you can do this. No, that's okay, Jesus forgives that. No, it's all right, Jesus overlooks that. We want to be loving. So rather than syncretism coming in from pressure from the outside, what you have is syncretism coming in from teaching from within. 
both watering down a true faith. Verse 21, I gave her, Jesus says, time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality comes up probably more in Scripture than most things. That there is something about one man, one woman, inside the boundaries of marriage, consensually sharing an intimacy for a lifetime that God created that is so special, that is so unique, and that is so ruined in our culture. You never meet somebody 40 years into marriage who says, I just wish I'd slept with more people before we got married. <laughs> okay, you don't meet Christians inside of marriage that, yeah, for, you, you get the point, right? Yeah. But you do, but you do meet people all the time who just wish they hadn't. Because there's something there. And we see the impact of sin. And so if sin is anything outside of that, then just look at if we, if we adhere to one thing, if we just did this one thing, right? Sexually transmitted diseases, out, right? Some surprise pregnancies, but no single parents, right? With the exception of death, right? Or something extreme, right? No affairs, less divorce, all these things, no comparison issues, image issues in women would shrink radically. Porn industry, out. One thing. Just one thing if we did one thing right. But instead, we allow this to creep in. And then typically, we ignore it. I've had some awkward conversations with some of you. Because we refuse to ignore it. Like, hey, this is so central to all of Scripture, that this is one of those easy ways to where are we letting what we want control more of how we live than what Jesus wants? I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Remember, the gospel is one of repentance. It calls us to a life of change. I want you to hear these two back-to-back -back verses, and I want you to hear them both equally strong. So 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is slow and patient with you. God desires your repentance. God's goal is not to smash you like a bug. His desire that you'd get on board, and so he is slow and patient. Now, I want you to hold that intention with the very next verse. Here it is, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God is patient. There's an end to his patience. God is kind and gentle and waiting, but not forever. That your job is to repent now that my job is to repent now and get on board what Jesus is calling us towards. Because there will come a time where all that you could have fixed or done or said or not said or not done, that day will be gone. Many evangelists have said the one thing you can't do in heaven is evangelize. There will be a day where you don't get to tell that loved one one more time about Jesus. There will be a day where your sin that has been pulling you away from God 
where you will no longer have the opportunity to repent of that. Where that leaves you, I don't know. Does that leave you in a place where you just wish you had lived for Jesus better? Or was it something that prevented you from coming to faith? Verse 22, behold, I will throw her, meaning Jezebel and those who follow that promiscuous and tolerant lifestyle. I will throw her onto a sickbed with those who commit adultery with her. By the way, sexual sin here is being used as a metaphor also for idolatry, for being unfaithful in your worship practice. Remember we talked about earlier, the things that crowd us out of church, the things that crowd us out of worship, right? When we give worship to something else, we're being unfaithful to God. That's why it's such a primary image. We know what it looks like if you're married and somebody cheats. We understand how harming and damaging and painful that is. We understand what that looks like. And so God says, listen, when you devote yourself to sports, when you devote yourself to politics, when you devote yourself to this, to that, what you're doing is you're being unfaithful to me. And so he gives us this image of sexual immorality so that we can feel the pain embedded in it and how it destroys the relationship that we're in with God. So it's a prominent image in Scripture. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. First use of great tribulation here. It's for this church. He says, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. Remember those eyes burning of fire and feet of burnished bronze. These are images of judgment. He says, I will judge the church. He says, I will come and I will throw those who follow this false teaching. I will throw them into a sickbed. And I will judge them. And I will give them time to repent, but if they don't repent, I will remove them. See, tolerance in the church today, we've been taught to be tolerant of false religions. Cultural nuances theological distinctions that set us apart, whether that means a literal view of Jesus is the only way or hell is eternal or whatever. Oh, no, no, let's just water that down. This false teaching will spring up. Oh, no, this is okay. Oh, that was just written in a patriarchal society. Oh, that was just written in a, in a culture to them. Be tolerant of other views. Verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hey, this enlightened learning. Hey, this, we're going to, we're smarter than Christians were 1900 years ago. We've learned so much more. This new thing, this enlightened learning he calls, and I'll read it again the deep things of Satan. Now, no, nobody is saying that's the deep things of Satan. They're saying, oh, these are the deeper meanings of God's word. And he says, no, those are the deep things of Satan. Like the throne of Satan in Pergamum and the deep things of Satan, your special knowledge you have. He says, those are satanic, those are evil. He says, for those who have not done that, I don't lay any additional burden on you. Stay the course. Hold fast what you have until I have come. 
Verse 26, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. What an important line. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. We'll get to this later, but Jesus calls the church, all who have died in faith in the past, all who have faith today, he calls us to a position of leadership and judgment in eternity. We'll play that out later. It's not super clear, but there is a clear calling towards it. We'll talk about what that means. But what happens is God has given leadership to the kingdom, to the kingdom of Christ, to Jesus. That's that whole son of man imagery in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that comes out of Daniel chapter 7 where the Ancient of Days, God, is on the throne and the Son of Man comes to him and God empowers the Son of Man to reign forever over all the nations. And then Jesus here, he is inviting us into this and he says this in the Gospels. We'll see it again later in Revelation so we don't have to talk about it today. But he invites us into leading in the kingdom. What that looks like, we'll talk about. But here's what he says, to the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, he doesn't say to the one who has an emotional response and goes down on the baseball field today. I don't care if that's how you came to faith, that's great. But he's not looking for an emotional conversion. He's not looking for you to peak in your faith at some point. He is looking for the one who overcomes and remains. We are called to endure in our faith until the very end. You'll often hear, it doesn't matter where you began, it's where you finish. Good news for me, my beginnings were pretty bad. But where I finish matters. So it doesn't matter if you started out in a prison cell, or in an addiction, or in a bad marriage, or in a, in a, in a, in a great home. It matters where you finish. To the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, to the one who makes it to the end, through this tribulation, remember, this book is not giving some false assurance of, hey, when it gets really hard, Jesus is going to remove you from the struggle. All these are told, listen, you're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. Even some of you have held fast, even when you were being put to death. You, when you conquer, when you overcome, when you make it to the finish line, it'll all be worth it, Jesus says. When I make everything right, you will sit at my right hand. You will reign with me forever in a kingdom that cannot be ruined. Jesus says, but you must persevere to the end. It doesn't matter how you start. It doesn't matter when you peak. It matters that you get to the end. And again, Jesus never calls us to white-knuckle it all the way to the finish line. Jesus empowers us by giving us his spirit, by letting his spirit live in us, the Holy Spirit in us, strengthening and leading and guiding us so that we make it to the end. See, our strength will fail, but Christ's strength in us gets us to the end. Verse 28, and I will give him, meaning the one who endures, the morning star, which is a name for Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the end, here's what Jesus says you get. And I often hear the gospel today of this gospel of forgiveness in heaven. Say this prayer, you'll go to heaven it's like we're marketing Jesus to people, and it breaks my heart. Here's what Jesus says you get. If you endure, if you stay the course, if you remain in him, here's what you get. 
You get Jesus. You get Jesus. You get all of Jesus forever. You get Christ. You get his kingdom, his power, his forever. You get Jesus. Revelation 19 says it this way. John writes, the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who, invite, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited, who win the race and get that little white stone and are invited to the feast. Because they have persevered, they've made it to the end. They will sit at the table with Jesus. He says, these are the true words of God. Our job is to let nothing from inside or outside creep in and water down our relationship to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm grateful for you. Your love drove you to become flesh. You set aside all that you could have, all that you did have, and you became like us. You sacrificed everything so that we could have you because apart from you, we have nothing. And so you call us inside our faith to live for you and you alone, to lead our families towards you and you alone, to do nothing that would compromise our walk with you and you alone. And we confess we let everything creep in. We let our pleasures creep in. We let the things we enjoy creep in over you. Not just our work, not just our food or our income, not just the world that we live in. We let our pleasures crowd you out. And honestly, we forget that our number one job is to train the next generation of followers. We forget that discipleship is our number one priority. Help us to repent as you have called the churches to repent today. Help us to turn from things that are crowding in from outside or coming from within. Help us to be exclusively for you, Jesus. You and you alone. That we will make it to the finish. That we will, that we will rise up one day with you and be seated at your table. Let us be faithful. Let us endure. Let us suffer with patience and endurance. When those times come, let us know this is just a part of the deal. That it's okay because you suffered. And we are just following you. On good days, let us focus on you. On hard days, let us focus on you. On good days, let us worship. And on hard days, Jesus, let us worship even more because you gave your life for us that we could have eternal life with you. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.